Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hi, this is Perry Marshall, and I am here with a very interesting guest for the Evolution 2.0 podcast. I'm here with Kevin Freeman, and he was introduced to me by Paul Bigham, which is one of the most connected business guys I know. And Paul is interested in many, many different things from business to technology to how society is put together and politics. In fact, Paul's raised over a billion dollars of funding for various causes. And, um, and he introduced me to Kevin, and Kevin and I had breakfast together a few months ago. And Kevin is a global financial analyst uh, commissioned by the Pentagon and is one of the world's leading experts on economic warfare and financial terrorism. Well, Kevin, so I want to welcome you here. And what I'd like to talk about, since Evolution 2.0 has a lot to do with AI, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how AI is going to do all of our jobs and AI is going to replace accountants and AI is going to replace authors and it's going to replace musicians. And I think a lot of this is way overblown and I think people are using it to kite their stock prices, but it's a great distraction from what the real issues are. And since you're an economic terrorism guy and you're the kind of guy who's literally every day is talking to people about, well, what, what are the chances of, you know, the U.S. government getting hacked by China and stuff like that, you would have a much better sense of what the real dangers are and what we should really be thinking about. So, welcome. Thanks, Drew. And Kevin, what do you think are the real issues as opposed to the fictitious ones? Okay, so in terms of artificial intelligence, and we had a fabulous breakfast you're a fascinating person and you've got your hands in so many different things and you probably understand the technology a thousand times better than I do uh, in, in every respect. But I can tell you what I'm worried about, what concerns me. In AI, I think I tend to agree with you. I think that it's not the world ending thing that uh, Elon Musk and others have suggested. But there are certain areas where we've turned over to technology, for example, in stock market trading. Uh, the vast majority of trades that take place in the stock market do not take place with human involvement. They are computers, primarily. Uh, in fact, 70% of the trading is, uh, is AI-driven based on algorithms. And it's not that they're going to purposely rise up to kill us in the market, but humans have coded these things, and so there are ways that they can be manipulated. Perfect example if you see in social media that the White House has been attacked uh, and the president is hurt, and that comes across from the Associated Press or other places, then the trading algorithms will immediately start selling stocks. Mm. And that happened in 2013. The Syrian Electronic Army literally uh, hacked the AP Twitter feed, said President Hurt, White House hit, and the stock market sold off $200 billion. So it's not wow. that the robots are going to take over. I think that <laughs> we've given a new vulnerability to our enemy. So that, that's one example. Okay. That's very interesting. Okay. Good. Um, so $200 billion. Right. Okay. It was about two minutes that it was down that much because anybody in Washington could look out the uh, the window and say, hey, there's no smoke, uh, there are no sirens, the White House is obviously not hit. But I contrast that with a story that happened here in Dallas in 1963, and a friend of mine was in a broker-dealer's office in downtown Dallas, 1963, November, I think you're probably putting the historical context in there, but he heard sirens, and he said, does anyone in this office believe that something good is happening when we hear sirens knowing the president's in town? 
and nobody could think of a positive reason for stock. So they sold the stock market like crazy. Mm. Six minutes later, they knew on Wall Street that the president had been shot. So they had a wow. six-minute advantage. With trading algorithms, we're already behind speed because the algorithms knew it seconds before, you know, milliseconds. Uh, the algorithms are reacting, and we have no idea what's going on at all. We wonder. We try and explain what happened in the market, but that's a big contrast from what happened in the nineteen early nineteen sixties. Okay, so what you've described is because of algorithms, the people that control the money are instantaneously responsive to things that happen in the world. But other than the fact that somebody's getting rich off of these events because they know faster than we do what's going on, like, so to the typical person or to the typical business owner or the typical professional, what does this mean? Or what are we supposed to do about it? Where, where are we supposed to think about this? Well, the problem is, is not that, because if it's a false information, false news, fake news, uh, the market's going to respond and, and restore order in very short uh, fashion, unless the trading algorithms at the Wall Street firms have been hacked, and so they've been programmed to do things we're not expecting, and all of a sudden, oh. the, you know, purpose-driven trading that would cause a, a massive crash. And so, you know, you, you tag it. Uh, if the Saudi Arabian oil fields are hit, you sell and you never buy again. If that's hacked into the system, then Sunday what would have happened is we would have had a, a crash almost unexplained on Monday. It's called a flash crash when that happens. It's happened a number of times. We have them regularly and frequently. But because we've turned over to AI a lot of the trading or a stock exchange, we're a little bit vulnerable to hacking, malicious intent. Not that the programs themselves are, are, you know, some Terminator program trying to kill us, but because people learn how to manipulate. It's still humans pulling the trigger. So what you're really saying is everybody's listening to Elon Musk worrying about how the, the future doesn't need us and the machines are going to drive us all into unemployment. Meanwhile, the real danger is a Chinese hacker could hack into Merrill Lynch or right. some, something like that. And they could program to sell when you should be buying or to buy when you should be selling. And then somebody pulls a little lever somewhere in the world and hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars suddenly uh, flow into a bank account somewhere. All of us pay for that essentially is, is what you're saying. Right. And what I'm saying is that the problem with artificial intelligence and the algorithms is that the humans are programming the algorithms or they can be manipulated. And so we've, I've got the same problem with Google search results that the algorithms are written in such a way as to move certain people to the top or move others down or to suppress free speech or to control at Facebook uh, what people are allowed to see. I, you know, the problem isn't that artificial intelligence just makes us that much more efficient at nefarious activity. It is it's in itself not necessarily the cause of nefarious activity. Well, Kevin, all of us know that nobody at Google or Facebook would ever try to insert their agendas or opinions into the functioning of a search engine that's used by billions of people. I mean, we all know better than that. Right, of course. That, that's that. And, and they would have us believe that. And they might manipulate the search results to tell us that that's the case. Right. Uh, yeah, or, or New York Times might just happen to leave out a critical fact in the story that any uh, journalism student would know had to be added or you get an F minus on the story. Uh, yeah, the, there's never a human agenda. And I guess it's the old adage, guns don't kill people, keep People kill people and artificial yes. intelligence doesn't harm people. People using artificial intelligence can harm people. So you have a huge focus in your platform, in your books, about economic terrorism. So what is that? Like, we all know what regular terrorism is. What is economic terrorism? Well, the first thing I should share is I just had in the economic war room a, a Vietnam 
a veteran that lost both of his legs, double amputee. He served in the Veterans Administration. He was a port investment manager for Ross Perot. He's a West Point grad, phenomenal guy named Alan B. Clark. And he shared, he walked through the history of all warfare and all warfare involves economics at one level or another. So mm -hmm. most wars are about money in some form or some fashion. There are religious wars and other things, but at the bottom part of it, they're mostly about money. Yeah. Uh, the difference with financial terrorism and economic warfare is money isn't just the cause, it is also the weapon. And so the idea that if you want to take America down, do you want to face America and face the American military might? Um, maybe today, uh, 20 years ago, absolutely not. Uh, you wouldn't want to directly attack America. So when Osama bin Laden chooses instead to attack the World Trade Centers, which is an attack on the economy. Uh, hackers attack the economy. So if you want to take, take America down, cut off our economic strength and people will panic. If you shut the ATMs down in Washington, D.C. for three months, uh, there's predictions that there'd be riots, uh, serious riots across the country. So the idea is we are an economic society, and one of the ways to attack America is via economics. Financial terrorism would mean that you would hack the stock market to cause panic rather than exploding a um, dirty bomb somewhere. So is this actually going on? Well, there's no questions going on. It's going on. It's been going on for for most of um, history. Uh, it's ramped up with technology in recent years, and it's particularly acute uh, today. We we see economic warfare. The whole trade war with China is a form of economic warfare. We're fighting. We undertake these things. Our enemies undertake these things. I I like to think, and I hope that America does it with good moral purpose. Uh, I know that's not always the case, but I hope it's the case more often than not. But we have involved ourselves in other economies and other economies have involved themselves in us. So give me some examples of what is actually forms of economic warfare that are going on right now that most people, they're never going to read about in the New York Times. Okay, well, let me just give a historical context one more. The beginning of World War II, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, that came following an oil embargo where we literally knew that if we cut off uh, the Japanese access to oil, they would have no choice uh, but to go and capture that oil in one form or fashion. We, we were pretty much pushing them into a type of, of uh, economic warfare. Now, that happened this uh, Sunday. I don't know if it was Iran or Yemen or who it was, but somebody attacked the Saudi oil fields. Mm. And whenever you manipulate oil access, uh, you're actually conducting a form of economic warfare. Okay, so tell me more. Saudi oil fields, like just just happened. So right, that's that's unpack that. Warfare. Saudi Arabia is the one of the largest, they're currently not the largest producer of energy. The United States has taken that uh, position. Uh, but the Saudis uh, produce a good percentage of the world's oil, and about 5% of the world's oil was taken offline. Mm. Now, you take 5% of, of an important commodity offline like that, and you can skyrocket prices. The good news is, is we have an American fracking and shale industry. And so we are the largest producer of energy, and we're about to become the largest exporter of energy. So this attack actually had a fraction of the effect that it would have had uh, mm. had we not been producing as much energy. Now, this is known. What else is known is that the American fracking industry that's been developed over the past couple of decades and shale plays and so forth, uh, Texas is now in the Permian Basin, the third largest, if standalone, third largest supplier of energy. The Permian Basin of Texas is number three behind Saudi Arabia and Russia. By itself, you add in the other Oklahoma and Pennsylvania and the other energy producing states, North Dakota in the United States, and we are number one in the world. So Vladimir Putin knew this was going to happen, and about a decade ago, he started funding environmental groups to oppose hydraulic fracking in the United States. Hmm. We know this. Congress has done a research study of it. I was one of the first ones to point it out 
and, and so he just threw money to environmental groups, and the environmental groups would sue the EPA to try and stop energy production practices, and the EPA, under the Obama administration, would settle with them. It was called sue and settle, and, and we would have a new restriction on whatever we do. Now we know that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have both declared that if they are elected president, they will ban hydraulic fracking and stop the development of hydrocarbons offshore and in the United States wherever possible. That is the result of economic warfare funding of environmental groups. And it's not just my opinion. The former head of uh, NATO, the Secretary General of NATO, documented this in a speech where he said that Russia was funding anti-fracking efforts around the world. And they understand, I know why they do it. Russia is a traditional producer of oil and gas. And when we produce it through shale industry or through hydraulic fracking, it keeps the price lower than it otherwise would be, costing Vladimir Putin and Russia money. So it's pure economic warfare and it's impacting us. And fortunately, uh, we've opened up our industry and the Obama administration was not as detrimental to fracking as many feared, but a future democratic uh, administration has threatened that they will ban hydraulic fracking. So I just picked up a book called the absent superpower. Dan Sullivan recommended it to me. And the gist of the book is that because of the shale industry, because of, energy industry inside the United States, uh, self-sustaining the United States, it's making us less dependent on foreign energy, which actually cause us, causes us to withdraw our attempts to influence what's going on all around the rest of the world. Because he's saying that, um, you know, 50 years ago, post-World War II, we were buying energy from all these places in the world. So therefore we were policing the world. So that would be probably a very Homer Simpson summary of, of that book. Is, is that any, There's at all consonant with your understanding? Sure. Absolutely. For example, what was our response to the attack in Saudi Arabia? President Trump tweets out, we're locked and loaded, but did we start a war? No. Had we been dependent on that Saudi oil and had that happen, we might have been preparing troops to send overseas. So there's good and bad effects that come out of this. Uh, I would say a good one is we may get involved in fewer wars, particularly in the Middle East. A mm. uh, bad one may be that we may turn too inward, and as a result of turning too inward, we don't play the moral role that we could. Uh, but it is a fact. These are all economic issues, and they are determinants of whether or not we go to war or not. So it's economics, and that's financial terrorism. Kevin, you told me a great story, which I've now repeated a bunch of times. And it was in relation to the kind of surveillance that is of, available to the Chinese government. And they're also exporting this to certain other countries. It started with turning a guy loose in Beijing or something like that. Oh, yeah. So tell that whole story. I, I really want people to hear this. Sure. And, and this is another form of economic warfare that we're facing. It's the race to 5G. And everybody's aware that there's going to be a new uh, standard for cell phone service. And, but it's, it's much more than just going from generation three to generation four to generation five. The, the bandwidth, the abilities, the capabilities of 5G are extraordinary. And that's what China has really been pushing. Why? The reason is China is a surveillance state. There are perhaps two cameras for every citizen in China. Think about that. Think about the potential when you put so many cameras out there per citizen that you're able to monitor every activity that takes place. So there was an intelligence officer that was in China not uh, long ago in Beijing, and they were demonstrating their ability to monitor their citizens and to find someone. So they turned out a really highly trained intelligence operative, a James Bond type, and said, go, you've got Head Start, get loose in the city and we'll see how long it takes to find you. 
They yeah. found him in matter of minutes. Now they gave him a head start and they said, we're not going to look for you exactly. until like two o'clock. Right. But then with, at two o'clock, it's like, okay, go back and to six, you. And, and, and six minutes later or something like that, they located him. They found him because there is so much facial recognition technology available. Uh, there are so many cameras that you cannot hide if you're out, out in public doing this, you'd have to be behind closed doors or, you know, hiding under a tree. That's not what he was doing. He was told to go out and, and be in society and we'll see how long it takes you. And, and that ties in with the surveillance state that the Chinese have developed and that they intend to export. When you hear about China offering the Belt and Road Initiative, which the are what? Belt and Road Initiative. Okay. They're offering a new Silk Road, all neighboring states and then eventually other states. We're going to help develop infrastructure in your nation so that we can do better business with you. And it sounds so good. It sounds like we would go to Mexico and say, hey, look, we're going to help develop your industry so that we can do more trade with Mexico. And that would sound like a very good thing. Well, China is doing that. They're building ports and they're building airports and they're building uh, technology infrastructure. So they built for the African Union, they offered to build a headquarters, which they did do. They built it and they built it at their expense and their financing and the Africans would pay for it, but they had to move out because they found that they'd also built in the surveillance technology to monitor everything that was taking place there. The wow. net result is it is a means for which they can monitor the rest of the world. And they're offering this technology to Venezuela and other nation states that want to keep tabs on their people. Well, we're a freedom-loving people, and we're a privacy-loving people. We won't want all those cameras monitoring us, unless, of course, we get free access to Facebook, and then we'll give them everything. <laughs> uh, bottom line is that China is a surveillance state they have a new form of 5G. It works on a certain bandwidth. It works a certain way. They're offering it at below cost, and it's through the company known as Huawei. And oh. governments around the world have been willing to adopt this technology. But our fear is, is that it will compromise uh, our information. And so the federal government, our government, has warned against the use of Huawei. We've banned Huawei computers and Huawei uh, equipment from the Pentagon and other sensitive places mm. because they could create the ability to do modern surveillance through. And uh, part of the deal, uh, as you were explaining to me, is if you let us put in your roads, if you standardize your currency, if you peg it to the yuan, um, then we'll also give you this kind of surveillance so that you can uh, spy on your own citizens, right? So here's some things I know. Every time there's a Chinese pop music concert, they arrest 30 to 60 wanted people because, uh, you know, criminals at large go to pop music concerts just like everybody else. And I know a situation where somebody was looking for somebody in China uh, or they walked into a local police station the police station, they had paperwork such that the police station would say, oh, yeah, we should cooperate with you, and found a needle in a haystack person in literally two minutes. Yep. Um, like, uh, if you could, and I saw this, I saw this happen, okay? Like, if, if you saw this, you'd be like, oh, my word. Like, they got the goods on everybody. No question. And in fact, there's another story. Uh, there was a, a young uh, person in business that came from New York, took a job in Beijing, was working there, and he would go out to dinner with his friends and say, I don't see the difference. You know, they speak Chinese here, but I am able to get what I, I want to do. I have a nice job during the day. I come out and drink with my friends. I eat with my friends and get into the evening. Everything's the same until one night... He did what he's done in New York a thousand times. He walked across the street, not in a crosswalk. And he noticed as he walked into the restaurant that his phone, ding, it shows, oh, you violated the, the law. You were jaywalking, and there is a uh, fine. And then, boom, he sees his bank account app open, and he realizes that the government's just taken the money out to pay for the fine. 
There's no wow. privacy whatsoever. And he says, maybe it's not the same as New York. <laughs> Perry, you know something a lot, quite a bit more than I do, I think. We've had some discussions about, about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. The Chinese are offering what they're deeming a uh, cryptocurrency, but it really is an electronic version of the yuan. And it's completely different from Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency because there is no anonymity. They know absolutely everything. They can control it. They can create it or disband it at their whim. But they're selling it like the Chinese Bitcoin. That's the type of control that I'm very, very concerned about. So what human rights abuses are going on because of this? It, it still might seem a little theoretical to the typical American or, or British or, you know, Canadian or Australian. So uh, human rights abuses, uh, I'll put one that's kind of humorous. What happens if you think that President Xi looks a little like Winnie the Pooh, as a lot of pundits around the world have said? And so you happen to send a text to your friend that says, oh, here's President Xi, look, look at Winnie the Pooh walking down the street. You, you could have a knock at your door and, and you could be re-educated uh, because that's not allowed. Free speech is not allowed. You see uh, human rights abuses in the Uyghurs. Uh, these are Muslims that live in China and they have their social media communications monitored. They have their telephone conversations monitored and you have to get re-educated in the concentration camp and they put a large number in concentration camps. Or they might find out that you violated the two-child policy. They had a one-child policy. They realized it had disastrous consequences. And so they just said, well, you can only have two children maximum. And so they decided, or you could be a Christian. You could be attending a church that wasn't officially sanctioned. Or, you know, you you could be in Hong Kong, and uh, perhaps you're living in Hong Kong, one nation, two sets of rules, and you're expecting that you have freedom, and no, no, there could be an extradition, and that's what all the Hong Kong protests are about. And by the way, the Hong Kong protesters are waving American flags and singing hymns like Sing Hallelujah to the Lord as the anthem of their movement. These people want freedom, and they see it being stripped away. So the average American should realize this is a direct threat to the freedom, not just in mainland China, but the freedom in Hong Kong, and really any company that does business with them. Or, here's the really bad one, uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, there was an employee of Marriott Corporation who was a big fan of the Dalai Lama. And okay. so he tweeted out a free Tibet thing, put it on social media, fan of the Dalai Lama, and what happened? The Chinese government saw it, they contacted Marriott Corporation, and they told them to fire him. And they did. Okay, so you got to expand on this. The Chinese government told Marriott to fire an American employee, and they did? Yep, absolutely did. So Marriott, they were told that this he's going in policies against China, and if you want to have the hotels in China that you want to have, you need to clamp this guy down and tell him that he's not able to do it. This is the same China, by the way, that told United Airlines who put Taiwan as a separate location on their airline map as labeled at Taiwan as opposed to China. Yeah. Uh, and they told them, if you want to keep your trade routes in China, you, you will not, if you want to have the landing rights and everything else, you will no longer put Taiwan separately in your airline magazine map. Wow. So, yes, they, they are beginning to tell us what we can and what we cannot say in our own nation if we want to continue to do business with them. This is the problem of having that level of monitoring and control. It's George Orwell in 1984. So I, I don't know if you know anything about this or not. If you do, speak up. Um, maps of China itself in China are distorted. Like the way the map says things are isn't exactly the way they actually are. And so like almost everything is off by a few hundred meters and it's specifically for the purpose of 
keeping people from knowing what the Chinese government is doing. Like the, the Chinese government publishes a map, but it's not really real. Does, are you familiar with this at all? Not, not directly, but it doesn't surprise me. I'm certainly familiar that the Chinese government, well, even our own government, there are things in our own government that we obscure. Our government has the ability to change GPS for national security reasons so mm-hmm. that you couldn't find a military base and so forth. But that doesn't surprise me at all uh, that China is doing this. And they, they, they do it to control their economy. They do it for their national security. They do it for a whole host of reasons. But in the end, uh, I think it's because they want to control people. And so that, that doesn't surprise me. This is the same Chinese government, by the way, that has hundreds of miles of tunnels under which uh, it, they have under, built under the ground where they have their nuclear missiles that they can move them around. This is a, a nation that has prepared for complete control of its citizens and uh, the worst kinds of war. So you know, it, it, it is not a good regime. And yet the Chinese people are warm and wonderful people. I've only been to China once, but I enjoyed uh, meeting the people I met there. They're good people. It's the Communist Party that's the problem. Well, um, I know a guy who was sitting in church maybe a year ago, year and a half, and I think there was a hundred people in the little church. All of a sudden, 40 police officers showed up. They said, this is not authorized. You don't have a license to do this. They fined the pastor a huge amount of money, and they said, game over, everybody's going home. Same guy, he has a relative living in a Western country who is a member of the Falun Gong. Mm. And the Falun Gong is this religious group that the Chinese government hates. I'm not exactly sure why they hate him, but this has been going on a long time. I can tell you that. And um, one day, two police officers showed up at his house. They showed photographs of his relative taken in the Western country they showed him copies of emails that have gone back and forth. And he said, you are wiring money to your relative and you're not going to do that anymore. Do you understand? That's kind of control we're talking about. So it was the Western person in the, in the Western nation wiring money into China. No, 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 no. It was the guy lives in China. His relative lives let's just say New Zealand. Yeah. Okay. Wiring money to New Zealand to a relative who's a member of the Falun Gong living in New Zealand. But okay. You're not going to send her money anymore. Do you understand? Wow. It doesn't surprise me. It's the type of control state that they're, you know, to take it back to the beginning of our conversation that artificial intelligence and technology is allowing this nefarious communist party regime uh, to undertake. It it, it really is frightening. And and it is beginning to go outside the borders, just as you're describing, uh, whether you're the Marriott employee in Omaha or whether you are in New Zealand or Australia or wherever, and you've got a tie into China. And at some point they will be, you know, you, you might make an investment that they don't think is a, is a good investment and they might uh, threaten you for that. And you might say, what, what is the problem here? This is the kind of economic warfare I'm talking about. And it goes even further because they have now infiltrated our markets. And this is something nobody is really aware of, uh, but the MSCI Morgan Stanley capital international stock market index, it's a global index of all the world. So you buy, you buy the S&P 500 and you own, uh, you know, the most of the stocks in America. You, you've made an investment in American stocks. You want to buy the world, you buy the MSCI World Index. Well, the Chinese have infiltrated to the degree that the MSCI has said, we're going to quadruple the weighting. When you buy our index, you'll buy n- not 6% China, you'll buy 25% of your money will be going into Chinese stocks. What's bad about that is, is we don't know if those Chinese stocks are real. 
We don't know if they don't have the same accounting standards. They don't let the accountants come in and do audits. They don't allow us to know. So that there's a book called The China Hustle. I think it's Dan David wrote it. There's stories where he set out with a camera outside a factory and, and took time-lapse photos of when they toured investors through the factory. One day they were making widgets and the next day they were making baby bottles and the next day they were making something else and they tour investors through the same factory, same people, same cars in the parking lot, but they were pretending to be you know, four or five different companies that they were raising money for each one of those. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know if there's any reality behind those stocks and yet the MSCI, the worst part about it, Perry, is the thrift savings plan of the United States, which has the pensions and uh, savings of uh, service members, veterans, government employees, and retired government employees, half a trillion dollars, has said that they're going to start allocating seriously to the MSCI World Index. So our soldiers may actually be funding companies in China that may or may not be real, or if they are real, they might be developing uh, weapons that will be used against them. They might be developing spying technologies that will be oppressing their people. It really is a, a bad situation, and I'm on a part of a team that's trying to fight that form of economic warfare and tell us, hey, through a savings plan, don't just automatically put money in China. It's not a good idea. So what would be a possible tipping point or sea change event they're driving towards something here okay they, they they're waiting for something to crack or something to break how would you describe that and what what are they really trying to accomplish here well the problem that china faces is that they're in economic difficulty their mercantilist approach their uh, theft of 200 to 600 billion dollars a year of intellectual property, their ability to hollow out uh, and take over industries has really, really been slowed down by the Trump administration. Uh, and, and this trade war that we're fighting, smart people, intellectual people on both sides of the aisle will admit they, they may dislike the way Trump's doing it with tweets or, or tariffs, but but most people in in the intelligentsia, the intelligence circles or politics that, that have been around that really understand things will we'll admit, yeah, China is a problem. And this is a big change from 10 years ago. Right now, China realizes that slowdown is a threat to the Communist Party. If the Chinese uh, economy doesn't grow at, at 6% or greater per year, uh, the Communist Party will come under attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, it's slowed below 6%. So they're either hoping to wait out this next election uh, and have uh, Trump defeated, or they're maybe actively involved in in defeating Trump. But they've done a great job of taking over most of the media, uh, most of the entertainment industry. I mean, you can't make a movie in Hollywood without uh, Chinese uh, kind of permission because they're a larger theater audience than the United States has. And so if you're a smart filmmaker, you want to make a film that can play in China as well which explains why an actor like Richard Gere is no longer seen in major parts. He's a big actor, big name actor, but he's also a friend of the Dalai Lama and the Chinese said no more of Richard Gere in movies. So they, they literally mm. cut him out. In academia, they've taken over with Confucius Institutes. These are big institutes placed at major universities and the little contract that comes with it, we'll give you all this money and we'll give you all of these Chinese students that will pay full fare. They're not looking for discounts. They're not looking for tuition breaks or scholarships or anything else. We'll pay full fare. But to, in order to have them and in order to have the Confucius Institute, you have to just sign something that says you're not going to say anything disparaging about uh, the People's Republic of China. And so they've in, mm. infiltrated academia. Can you back, back up a step? You said they've infiltrated media. That's, that's like a really broad brush statement. So tell me, Okay, you you explain that in movies. Yes. Tell me more. Well, there's a monetary influence. Uh, China's a big market, and so they've said to media companies that uh, we'd love to have you partnered here, and if you do, then you've got to make sure that you're not speaking negatively. Now, this isn't unique to China. It's happened, for example, uh, with Saudi Arabia and Prince Alawi bin Talal, 
bought a big chunk of News Corp and worked with the Murdoch family and said, we don't want Fox News to be anti-Islam and anti-Saudi Arabia. And so it went from one day talking about the Islamic riots in France, the Muslim riots in France, to, uh, you know, a few weeks later, uh, they were the youth riots of France, just subtle things. So, you know, and, and the United States uses, we do this too. We use subtle influences that we can to make certain that the media that we get in other nations is strong. But in China in particular, they're very sensitive. And so if you're a media conglomerate, it, you, you want to be, have access to the Chinese markets and you want to have a good relationship. It's changing. It's beginning to be that uh, news media will now allow negative comments about China. But 10 years ago, when I was talking economic warfare, people would look at me and say, but China's our friend. We owe them a lot of money. They would never do anything to hurt us. They're they're always pro-America. They're becoming a democracy like us. Uh, (laughs) That turned out not to be the case, but that was the typical belief line. And that was in the face of real, real things, real threats. Like tonight I'm going to meet with Rosemary Gibson. She's going to be speaking here in the Dallas area. And I'm going to go hear her speak. She wrote a book titled China Rx. China Rx is about their infiltration of the pharmaceutical industry. Drug manufacturers are worried that they won't have access to the Chinese market. They want access to the Chinese market. So they've shipped a lot of manufacturing overseas. And sometimes bad things happen because the FDA can't inspect in China like they can in the United States. So she tells a story of heparin, you know, which is used in virtually any surgery. In the early 2000s, heparin supply coming from China uh, was tainted. And the uh, Center for Disease, Disease Control was wondering, why did this healthy person having surgery die in Atlanta and another healthy person having surgery, different age, different sex, different background, died during, uh, shortly after surgery in San Francisco and another one in New Jersey? What mm-hmm. they found, Chinese manufacturing of heparin, it requires pig intestines, whether you make it in the United States or wherever, but an enterprising Chinese entrepreneur decided that maybe we could use some pig intestines that weren't medical grade and we'll just slip them in. It'll save, you know, a huge amount per batch. So they did. And the net result was it was tainted. People died. They now control most of our pharmaceutical industry. They, uh, not most, they don't control it. They have supply chains that are in, into most of our pharmaceutical industry. They have supply chains most in, into our nutraceutical industry so that most vitamin C, for example, is made in China. They've just undercut the price, taken over the industry. But now it gets serious because if we had an anthrax attack, like we had a few years ago from a domestic terrorist, I assume, we wouldn't be able to manufacture the drug that combats anthrax, we'd have to go to China. So if we were in a war with the Chinese and we said, oh, there's an anthrax attack on our soldiers, hey, sell us some antidote for this. We, we couldn't sell the, the Cipro or the high-end antibiotics. We, we don't make it. So they have infiltrated nearly every aspect of society. And again, the primary purpose is to make them the dominant nation in the world and to displace the United States of America wherever possible. Not to kill us all, but to be the primary superpower of the world. That's the purpose. And they've infiltrated media and academia and the pharmaceutical industry and Wall Street and all these places that they could. And that is all economic warfare. So these are all very high level systemic things. What should a a typical person do about any of this? All right, so we have a whole program titled Economic War Room with Kevin Freeman. It's on Blaze TV. You'll learn about it at economicwarroom.com. Every episode that we produce has a battle plan. It's a PDF document of 10 to 50 pages that recaps the episode, says the practical things you can do to respond, and then gives links to third-party information that documents that what we've said is, is factually accurate so that you can do the research for yourself. In the case of China RX, one of the things that we recommend that you do is, is ask your pharmacist where the supply of this drug is manufactured 
and where the components are manufactured. It's not perfect, but you can at least look into the drugs you're taking and see if they have a Chinese supply component and see if there are alternatives that are manufactured elsewhere. Then, of course, we recommend that you contact your congressman and say, for strategic national security reasons, we would like to have the government uh, uh, provide um, supply chains that are perhaps not Chinese. And so are there incentives that we could to restart industries in the United States or at least maintain a supply of drug in the United States for critical things like we have a strategic petroleum reserve? We don't have all the answers, but we have uh, the problem and some general ideas. And sometimes it's an economic decision. It's what we tell people to weaponize their money. And there are three things you do with your money. You can save it uh, and invest it. You can spend it or you can give it. And you ought to weaponize uh, all three areas where, where you invest it, make sure that it's not going into companies that fight against American values, but maybe supporting companies that, that cooperate with the United States if they're foreign or in the United States. When you spend it, uh, maybe redirect your spending to areas, you know, nations of the world that we know are not trying to control their people, not imprisoning uh, millions of uh, people for religious reasons. Uh, that are that are good, uh, you know, good allies of the United States. Let your spending be there or in America, which is another good alternative. Uh, and and then you're giving. Make sure that you're giving to right causes. We educate people. We give them information on what they can do about the problem. And then ultimately, we try and take them to a higher thing, which is uh, a beautiful segment. Um, you know, and we we try and direct them. I'm a believer, a Christian. Uh, we try and direct people to the truth of the Bible and Judeo-Christian Western civilization values. Um, so, you know, um, American patriotism isn't exactly the most in vogue thing right now, but really what you're talking about is classical liberalism, believing that people should have access to information, believing in freedom of speech, believing in free markets, Right. I mean, this is, these are just basic foundational things. And, and what you're saying is uh, the Chinese government, like not interested in that. And, and I don't think I've, I've been to China five times. I've adopted two kids from China and China is like raging capitalism. In some sense, it's more free market than American capitalism, but it's with one party in charge and, owning at least indirectly owning everything so like you don't ever actually own land you lease it from the chinese government for 99 years or something like that it's and like you don't like like it in 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 the united states you want to criticize donald trump have at it right but you want to crit- criticize the premier of china uh-uh. Uh-uh. What, what, what happens to people when they criticize the premier of China, Kevin? Well, there was one that, that uh, and this is part of the extradition law of Hong Kong uh, that's been at such an issue. There was one who was in Hong Kong. He was a bookseller, and he was highly critical of uh, premier uh, and the Chinese government, the Communist Party, and he just disappeared. And we don't know what's happened to them, right? More publicly, they will put you in a concentration camp and help re-educate you because, you know, we have to assume the Communist Party is always after the interests and the good well-being of its citizens. You know, so the proletariat. Yeah, it, it, it really is frightening. It, and you, use of classical liberalism is perfect because uh, my good friend, Dr. Everett Piper, wrote a book uh, why I'm a liberal and other conservative ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, classical liberalism is uh, Western civilization. It's the roots of what we believe. So we talk about moral democratic capitalism, mm-hmm. and we think that's the solution for things. It's got to be moral because if you're selling drugs to get people hooked on drugs and trying to trying to kill babies for money and stuff, that that's not moral, and it's it's it should be excluded. It needs to be moral. Adam Smith was a moral philosopher and wrote a theory of moral sentiments before he wrote A Wealth of Nations. So it's got to be moral. It's got to be democratic. It's, it, it can't be cronyism. Uh, it's got to be equal opportunity for everybody. It can't be because your last name is, is, is a certain name or your skin color is a certain skin color that you should have more 
uh, opportunity than others. We need to give as much equal opportunity for people as possible. And mm-hmm. it's got to be as fair as possible. But then it has to be free markets. In the end, liberty determines greater prosperity. The greater the liberty, the greater the prosperity. Controlled markets like China is, is pushing have only worked because they've allowed this unfettered uh, capitalism in spaces, and then in other places, they've literally stolen intellectual property, and they've cobbled that together in a form of mercantilism that's allowed them to grow at a very rapid pace, but it cannot continue forever. They've been sucking wealth from the West, and at the same time, they've allowed some good freedoms that have allowed sparks, but in the end, it it is under the Chinese control, and controlled economies always fail. So they tinker with things. The, the temptation to tinker is too great, to control is too great. And in the end, that will end in abysmal failure, or it will end in the enslavement of mankind. Well, Kevin, this has been great. If somebody wants to learn about economic warfare, where do they go? How do you, what do they watch? What do they sign up for? Okay, so I've written a couple of books. You can learn about them at our website, economicwarroom.com. You can learn about the TV program. You get access to my blog, which is separately, globaleconomicwarfare.com. But if you start at economicwarroom.com, you can learn a lot about us. You get access to the YouTube page that we've set up so you can see clips from all our shows. Uh, You can go to our Facebook account. You can see the tweets that we produce. Everything starts at that one hub. Well, that's great. Well, this has been fascinating and sleep with one eye open, everybody. And, uh, you know, don't, don't be seduced into thinking that there aren't a lot of temptations out there that a lot of other people, uh, you know, couldn't succumb to. So thank you. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, Perry. I, I always like to close with something beautiful because honestly, I think our future can be outstanding and fantastic. While we have this ongoing spiritual and economic war, we also have people that are doing amazing things. Mm-hmm. And, and the internet and the possibility of information sharing and technology can bring a lot of positive benefits to society. And, and in our conversation, we didn't just talk about the bad, we talked about the beautiful things that are happening too. And I, I appreciate all that you do to bring that awareness to people around the world. Well, thank you, thank you, great meeting up with you again. All right. Thank you. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Fingerprints.com.